I wanted to share something with you, and I especially want to just share it in the right timing. And uh, before I share that, I was just thinking that uh, looking out at everybody, the thought was going through my mind about when I was baptized, which was 44 years ago last week, and all of us fit into Sister Helen's basement. I'm thinking that, and I looked out at everybody here. We wouldn't fit in Sister Helen's basement any longer. And uh, Brother Howard said to me, there's a lot of people here. And that's not all of us. Think of around the world. And, and just um, I just felt an urgency to share this today. I actually wrote Brother Ossie a note saying I wasn't prepared to. And then later in the morning, I saw I never sent it to him. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am, and I, I just hope, Lord, help me. I want to share this with you, and it was very exciting. And, and I think it's, if I don't do it now, it's, it's, it really needs to be done right now. And I, I hope by the grace of God I can do it because I, I think it's important. And um, it began, I guess it's because the spring is coming. And what is the spring? I remember Sister Regina ministering something one time. It's the spring is the time when kings go out to war. And the spring is coming, and you feel like God has things for us to do. And I thought maybe I could just share a little, a little something that might help that. And it, it really began recently. I was out with some young people in New York that I've been working with, and about six of them, and they're not believers, and they're from California. And... Um, and I've known him a while, we worked together a while, and um, a point in the conversation came, and I, I, uh, they were talking about history and Texas history, and I thought I'd just share with them about Cabeza de Vaca and the incredible miracles that took place with what happened to him. Most of you know the story, and how he, you know, they were the first Spaniards to land on the Texas coast, and, and, and through years of slavery, really, they were reduced down to where the Lord could use them, and I... I shared that, and I shared some of the miracles about it, and at the end of it, their reaction was, no way. That, could, that story got mixed up somehow. That could not happen. I mean, flat out, all of them, nope, couldn't happen. You know, history's been rewritten. It's been reconstructed, and I thought about them, and I thought, you know, it's kind of a disappointing thing, and I thought, Lord, what happened to them? And what are they doing? And, and it, it just kind of set me on a course and I began thinking about immortality, a little subject, and how, uh, and I just want to share something about that to start because I think it will just take us somewhere and I want to condense this. I just went back and I began thinking with something Brother Blair administered about who are we? And you know, we are beings, <laughs> human beings, and we're made in the image of God and how is that? And how we're body, soul, and spirit. You know, it says in Genesis, as far as our body, 2 and 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And it gave us life. So the dust of the earth in our bodies, the Spirit of God was breathed into us. Job says, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. And you know, our souls, as said, is the, is the junction of that breath of life and our bodies. And our souls are, the, I believe, the seed of our intellect, our mind, our 
personality, our emotions, and our will is what it is. And it makes us up as an individual person. But still, what differentiates us? There's a lot of beings that have the breath of life in them, right? I mean, a dog has a breath of life in them. And they're, they're also bodies. And they're, but what is it that makes us different? And it says that, you know, we're not just sentient. Is that how you say it? Sentient beings from the word senses. Well, we have senses. That's what makes us different. You know, we feel and see and hear and taste and we're sentient. Well, dogs are sentient too, you know. I mean, animals feel for their young and they're, they're sentient. They feel these things. What makes us made in the image of God? Ecclesiastes says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. And that's the difference. He placed this sense of eternity in us. And, you know, you can deny it like those young people denied eternity. Well, we're not deal with that. More time. I'm not going to deal with that. But just because we deny it doesn't mean it, it isn't true. So he placed this thing in the sentient beings made in his image, us, and he placed eternity in our hearts. You know, what does it say in Acts? He is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. We know it deep down inside that there is something beyond this thing of life. And it's a driving thing. Thank you, Jesus. And we know what happened. Then the Lord God said, this is after, you know, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay. So this sentient being is about to have a big, a big change put upon him. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He also drove out the man, and he placed cherub in the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So death, we know, entered the world, and we were cut off from the tree of life. And mortality entered through that. Now, I'm going somewhere with this because I want to explain what does that do to us and what we're going to do with it, okay? Immortality, to be immortal, to live forever. And that wasn't on these young people. It was not, it was not on their agenda. They didn't, they didn't want to deal with that thing at all. They didn't believe in it. 1 Timothy 6 and 16, who is he who is the blessed and only potentate and king of kings, lord of lords, who alone has immortality. So, and we know that it's only through him is there immortality. There is no other way. But that doesn't stop men from trying immortality other ways, right? And the fact is that we are driven as these sentient beings made in his image by that sense of eternity, we are driven to find those ways. All people, Brother Blair ministered, it is the driving force in life. Inasmuch then as the 
as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus did that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, subject to captivity, to death. And that's what he, that's what he came to do for us. So everyone knows we are in bondage, it says, to the fear of death. We can deny it. We can believe in reincarnation. We can do what you want to do. But a driving force in every single person is the fear of death. It's in us. It's like Agog said when Saul captured him and he realized he wasn't going to be put to death right then. Surely the bitterness of death has passed, he said. But it hadn't, right? Samuel changed that right then and there. So we know that there's... There's two ways to immortality. One's not going to get you there. And, and men are always contriving to find a way other than immortality through Jesus. God will render to each according to his deeds, Romans 2 and 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. Romans 6 and 23 for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. You know, so mankind, we have two choices, whether to seek immortality through him or to seek our own immortality through other means. And everyone wants to live on, and we seek ways to immortality. And, you know, we can do what Ernest Becker talked about. Brother Blair would quote Ernest Becker, and we can come up with what's called immortality projects. And everybody's got an immortality project. Now, it, it may not be the Lord, but we devise immortality projects, and they, get, they can get pretty strange immortality projects of men. Ernest Becker wrote about the causa sui, self-generated cause, being one's own cause in life. He said, a person's causa, is that Latin, sui project, acts as their immortality vessel, their immortality project, whereby a person creates meaning beyond their own lifespan. Immortality projects are one way that people manage death anxiety, the fear of death. So we're trying. Believe it or not, or believe in God or not, People are forever trying immortality projects. It's inescapable because remember, we're held in bondage to the fear of death. Everyone is. And there's modern attempts. I mean, isn't reincarnation just that? An attempt to escape mortality? The futurist Ray Kurzweil said nanotech could help overcome disease and aging by 2040. Now, he said that in 2009, so we better get in gear here. You know, we don't have a whole lot of time to get this one. In 30 or 40 years, we'll have microscopic machines traveling through our bodies, repairing damaged cells and organs, effectively wiping out disease. Technology is an immortality project. It is. Or how about cryogenics? 
I'm kind of doing the outer limits of immortality projects. How about cryogenics? Brother Webb's smiling because I shared this with him, and he, he, um, it is kind of, you know, that's where people have themselves frozen. For a mere $200,000, you can be frozen, especially if you do have a, a uh, life-threatening disease, and people do it. Cryogenics, or if you can't afford the $200,000 whole body package, you, for $30,000, you can have your brain frozen in the hopes that technology in the future, we don't have that technology yet, but you know, technology in the future will be able to wake you, defrost you, put you in the microwave, wake you up, bring you back to life, and you're gonna be all there because they're gonna be able to cure your disease, bring you back to life, and you're gonna lead eternal life. Now seriously, immortality projects, people are, are pretty serious, you know, $200,000, they're pretty serious about immortality projects. And um, I'm just saying the outer limits of immortality projects, but you know, we don't have to go to the outer limits because we're all gonna have immortality projects, whether it's denial or whether it's faith. We're driven by that fear of death and being prisoners to the fear of death to escape that captivity. I think there's a governor to it and we all deal with life the way we want. And I think we come up with what's called plausibility structures, okay, for our immortality projects, plausibility structure. Now this is going somewhere that why, what we're gonna do this year, okay? <laughs> it's, we're gonna get there, stick with me, please. And plausibility, what does plausibility mean? Plausible, plaus, laws, applaudable. I applaud that idea. That's very plausible to me. But it also has the word in there, laude. I praise that idea. That, that I really believe in. So what we found, what we find plausible, a plausibility structure in our lives is the thing that we worship. It's the thing that we believe in, even to get us to immortality. And it can be the Lord, and it can be cryogenics, and it can be nanotechnology, and it can be denial, but that's our plausibility structure. And you know, there's something in us that, in what we're trying to do, that is a struggle. And we, we have plausibility structures, even every one of us, and, and we wanna, you know, our faith is, is our plausibility structure. And that can involve a lot of fears at times. And we know that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Abraham went to a place he did not know. Hebrews, but without faith it is impossible to please God. So this is a big thing. What are we gonna do? How, how, what's our plausibility structure? You know, we're all gonna have to decide whether to have that faith or not and, and what that means. Think about Moses and how, you know, God called him to get down to Pharaoh in Egypt and he said, I can't do it. This is not plausible for me to do this. I'm not a good speaker. I, you, you've got the wrong person. I, I, I cannot do this. What did it say? Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, 
please send someone else. This is not plausible for me. Then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses at a lodging place on the way Yahweh met Moses and was about to kill him. He also said that Moses was the most humble man on earth, I believe. Or think about the four leopards and the the plausibility structure of the guard there. Then Elisha said, now this is the four lepers, the the city in Samaria is surrounded by uh, by the Syrians. Then Elisha said, hear the word of Yahweh, thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a sea of flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. That's cheap. They were eating their children at the time. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look. Now this is not in his plausibility structure with the prophet saying. If Yahweh would make, the, the, make windows in heaven, this thing could not be. Elisha said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So this was going to happen, but he had limited God by the limitations of his plausibility structure. And that's what I want to talk about. What should be our plausibility structure in our immortality project? How does God want us to expand what we feel like is is plausible in our lives? Think about the spies that went up into the promised land, the 12 of them, that Moses sent up. And we know Joshua and Caleb were in there, and they came back, and the other spies said, what, there are giants in that land? This is completely implausible. This cannot be done, right? Forget it. We are not able to go up against the people because they are too strong for us. So they brought a bad report of the land, which they had spied out. Oh, wish we died in the land of Egypt. Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. It wasn't plausible to them. But who stood up? Joshua and Caleb. Surely we can do it. Their plausibility structure said, let's take the risk. Let's do it. Okay, he's talking about risks. Here we go. And that's what I want to talk about. And you know, every road, every road in life, it seems like every road anywhere has a ditch on either side, right? And I think Brother Josiah said it recently that He said, if you're in one ditch, you see 2020 vision, the other ditch, something like that, right? I can see exactly those people in the risk ditch, I can see their problem, you know. They're forever falling flat on their face, and they're taking these risks, and people in the risk ditch see the other ditch, and they say, oh, these people who, you know, watch out for themselves, they'll never stand up and take any chances in life. And, And the two ditches... You know, they, they can see each other, but they don't see themselves. I want to talk about the one ditch, and I'll call it the comfort zone ditch. What does comfort mean? Comfort with fort, forte, fortress, strength. It's the people who rely on their own strength. I am going to watch out for this. I am not going to take a risk here. 
I'm going to have wisdom and I'm going to be I'm going to be very careful in this. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to stretch it here because I see those people who take risks and make fools out of themselves. I was thinking about how they brought the all the different scriptures about people stepping out and taking risks. And when they had come to the multitude a man came to him kneeling down to him and saying, "Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. It sounded like they were taking risks. They took a risk and prayed for someone, and guess what? It didn't work. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. Think about Philip even in Samaria. That's pretty amazing to me. Philip goes down to Samaria and says he's performing miracles. And no one received the Holy Ghost. Do you think he prayed for people to get the Holy Ghost in Samaria? I think he did probably lots. And no one got the Holy Ghost. Until what? Until the apostles came down. Until Peter came down. Did he come with James and John? Until he came down, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying about risk is that we step out in faith and risk and take risks, and they're not always going to work out. In the one ditch, we don't want to take risks. We want to stay in our comfort zone. In a way, faced with risk, we might pick up our marbles and go home too much for us. You know, it's the voice of reasons. The voice of reason, like in Athens. We'll hear you another day on this. Ecclesiastes 11.4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he regard, who regards the clouds will not reap. We talked the other night I shared about the, the centipede's dilemma. I think that ditch is the centipede's dilemma, also called the curse of the toad. <laughs> Comes from this poem. Ever hear the centipede's dilemma? A centipede was happy quite until a toad in fun said, pray, which leg moves after which? This raised the centipede's doubts to such a pitch she fell exhausted in the ditch, not knowing how to run. She thought about it. Now, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven does not come by observation, but the centipede thought, well, which one of these hundred feet do I go forward with first? You know, it's kind of like tying your shoes. Think about this. You don't, you go down and done. And a child comes up to you and said, could you tell me how to tie my shoe? Well... Well, first you take a loop in this hand. No, no, not quite like that. No, the other hand. And then you go around it. But once you're thinking about it, you can't do it. The violinist Adolf Busch, who was asked by a fellow violinist how he played a certain passage of Beethoven's violin concerto, Busch told that it was quite simple. And then he went to play it and found he could no longer play the passage. He couldn't do it because he consulted with this thing. And what it takes is taking a risk and just going ahead and do it. 
So back to the other dish, ditch, those risk takers. Let's go back to them a second, because I'm in that ditch a lot, okay? I'm a risk taker. <laughs> Sorry. You know, people in the, in the ditch, I, I think of risk takers, I think what goes wrong a lot of times is persona. Persona is an Etruscan word, actually, and it's the mask that actors would wear. It's called the persona in a play, playing another person. You know, and, and if we're in a ditch where we're in bravado, taking risks, if we're not careful, we know that that bravado can just be, I mean, that, that risk-taking won't be the Lord. It will be just us doing it. You know, we're, we're putting on a mask, like Jonah said, a mask, an image, an idol. So they'd be playing someone, they'd wear this mask painted on it of the character that they're playing. It's not really them who God made them to be, but it's someone that they're playing. Those who cling to worthless images forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And a form of identity, a form of personality, really, a persona. And if we develop that persona, our risk-taking is not going to work. So they're right in the, other, in the other ditch of being careful. They're right about sometimes about people who take risks. T.S. Eliot wrote, we prepare a face to meet the faces that we meet. That's what they say it is. He said, he was pointing it out, he said, we prepare a face to meet the faces that we meet. And that life is full of people who wear faces and we can wear them with them. Or how about 2 Corinthians 10 and 5? We demolish arguments and what? Every pretension. Pretending. That sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we can, in, in that ditch, we can do that. We can be pretentious. And it won't work. It's not faith. You know, we can also do what we call hedge our bets, maybe. Is that what it's called? You know, we can do both. We can be very, very careful about this. We can, we can play both sides, you know, just to make sure that it's not too vulnerable, this risk-taking stuff. Because this risk-taking stuff we're going to get to is very important stuff. <laughs> okay, so we, we can, in the Lord it is. And there's all kinds of pitfalls in either, in either ditch that are not going to work. And we're going to get to the answer here. You know, I think of like Gehazi. He's with Elisha. He's his servant, just like Elisha was Elijah's servant. And he's supposed to be, now that Elijah's gone, Gehazi is supposed to be Elisha's servant. But he's got a problem. And like when Naaman comes the Syrian, and, and he, he's healed, you know, Naaman says, Elisha, let me pay you for this. He says, no, I do not want your money. You keep your money. Gehazi sees he left money on the table here, and he's going he's gonna to hedge his bets, and he's going to, he goes and catches up to Naaman and lies to him. 
He says, now some of the sons of the prophets have come. How about some money and clothes for them? My master sent me out to you, which wasn't true. We know the story. Of course, Naaman says, well, of course, you know, when he unloads clothes for him and shirts and, and, and shekels and gives it to him and he sneaks back and, you know, he takes it from the guys who carried it for him and he goes in and, and he said, uh, Elisha says to him, now he went in and stood before his master Elisha. He says, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. You know, we can, we can make room for ourselves you know, instead of really coming to a place of vulnerability, we can try both sides. Take some risks when they're real safe, you know. You know, Gehazi comes back on the scene again. You ever read that later on in chapter 8 of Second Kings? Years go by. And it came to pass at the end of seven years. Now, this is seven years after the woman whose son Elisha had, had brought back from the dead she had left the country. She left Israel during that time, during a famine, and she went to uh, the land of the Philistines. She came back to make an appeal to the king for her house and land, to get it back. Then the king talked, and, but at the same time, she's coming back to the court of the king, and Gehazi come, is standing in the court as a leper. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of God, saying, Gehazi, please tell me all the great things Elijah had done. You see, because Gehazi, he was only ever left to tell stories. He was no longer participating in it. He had lost his place in it because he was always trying to get something for himself, always trying to protect himself and things. And he had forfeited his inheritance. And all he's left, he's a leper, and all he's left is to stand before the king and tell him stories about how Elisha, you know, rose this person from the dead, and Elisha did this, and Elisha did that. And as he was telling the king how he had, Elisha had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life came walking in, appealing to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, oh, my lord, oh, king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elijah restored to life. And all he was ever left to do was to talk about it. Because he was trying to have an immortality project. But I want to talk about another way. Okay? And that neither ditch is going to work. Okay? And the other way is, is what Jesus said. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. There is a way that's not either ditch. And what are the attributes of that way? What is it? So it's not in this ditch where I'm going to watch out and be real careful. It's not in this ditch where I'm going to take on some kind of bravado personality and take... It's not in either ditch. What is it? There's a way that leads to life. And I'm going to say that I think that that way is this. 
His strength is made perfect in our weakness, not in our comfort. 2 Corinthians 12. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is made sufficient in you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Luke 9 and 23, if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Acts 14 and 22, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Romans 5 and 3, not only that, but we also glory in what? Sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter 2 and 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. We live in a sanitized world, is what we live in. Death is sanitized. Disease is sanitized. It's not like any other time in the history of the world that we live in. It's all taken care of and neatly packaged and put away. It's in drugs. It's in legal drugs. It's in over-the-counter drugs. It's in assets. It's in everything. A sanitized world that removes us from a sense of suffering. I mean, look, how about 1 Corinthians 7 and 28? Those who marry will have trouble. How's that a guarantee for people marrying? Those who marry will have trouble. Why do it? Well, guess what? We're not doing it. In the U.S. in 2019, among adults aged 25 to 29, fewer than one in three were married. 60% of young men in America between the age of 20 and 29 are not married. Because it's true and they know it. Those who marry will have trouble. Why would I want trouble? Why would I want the risk of trouble? Because you see, risk involves suffering. But who are we following? What does Hebrews say? Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered, right? And greater things shall you do, though the half has not been told. You know, we're back to risk again. You know, I read the account recently of that Robert Scott, the Antarctic explorer, you know, and you could say, well, look, here's a guy of bravado, you know, took great risks, and he did. His dying words were a confession of the risks he took. He laid in his tent after they got to the Arctic and had been beaten there by the Norwegian, I believe, Edmundsen. And they came back and they all died. 
and finally, in the end, three of them laid in their tent in a blizzard 11 miles short of the depot for their supplies, and they laid down and died. And he wrote in his journal, he said, I took risks. He said they were calculated risks. He said, I took risks. I know I did, and it didn't work out. They said they found him there finally in the tent, frozen to death with his two companions, and his arms were stretched out, frozen. And he confessed it. He said, I took risks. And he was quite a man of bravado. He really was. But you know, is that going to run us off from taking risks? You know? Is because some people have the persona, you know, big persona. Is that going to say, well, look at that. I know what did it to him. Or look at his failure. I know why he failed. I'm not taking risks like that. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that risk. I'm not going to step out and do that. Peter was pretty bold when he went to, you know, up to the temple and saw a man there. They're surrounded by people going to the temple, and he's a beggar, and he's lame. You know, he said, silver and gold, I have none, but what I have, I give to you. Now stand up and walk. I mean, would have been a little embarrassing, right, if that guy didn't stand up and walk. He took a risk. That's true about Scott, though. He died. He's full of bravado. 10,000 people. In, in London, when the, when the word arrived there in London, heard he was dead. They gathered there just to talk about him. You know, his fellow explorer, I think at the same time, was Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton. What did he do? He, remember, you've all heard his ad in the London paper? He put an ad in. He was going to go on a, an Antarctic expedition also. He wrote the ad, men wanted for hazardous journey. He just ran this little ad in the London paper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful. <laughs> Do you know what he said? Thousands of men answered. <laughs> he said, I think old Britain wants to go with us. And you know, that's what it's like for us. That's, you know, we're, we're not exploring the Antarctic. No, we're not. But I believe there are thousands waiting to hear someone. Would you come with us? Safe return, doubtful. We're coming with you anyway. I believe they're out there. When we go out to war this spring, I believe they're there. And we can't stand in either ditch. We cannot. The way is narrow that we're going to have to find. It leads to eternal life. We can't be in the ditch of bravado. We can't be in the ditch of self-protection and covering ourselves. We can't be in either one. But there are people who want to answer that. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. Can we go with you? Thousands. He said, I think every man in Britain wants to come with us. How about this quote, Solzhenitsyn? Because I'm saying that that's, that narrow way is what Jesus learned his obedience and suffering. 
The Gulag Archipelago, remember Solzhenitsyn? No one, no one even remembers him. I mentioned him to some young people. I said, who is he? Not young people here. He wrote this. Remember the Gulag? He was an officer sentenced to the, in World War II, sentenced to the Gulag for political reasons. He suffered there year after year in the, you know, the an archipelago is islands in Siberia where he was, he was a slave laborer for years. He said, there is a simple truth which one can learn only through suffering. In war, not victories are blessed, but defeats. What's he saying? Governments need victories and the people need defeats. Victory gives rise to the desire in a government for more victories. But after a defeat, it is freedom that men desire, and they usually attain it. A people needs defeat just as an individual needs suffering and misfortune. They compel the deepening of the inner life and generate a spiritual upsurge. Suffering does. You've heard this expression, having skin in the game. I think it comes from Warren Buffett, about having a horse in the race. It reminded me of this scripture. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life, for his immortality. But stretch out your hand now and touch Jonah's bone and flesh through suffering, and he will surely curse you to your face, skin for skin. How about Jesus with Lazarus? Why didn't he go right up to raise Lazarus from the dead? Then Jesus said to them simply, now remember he delayed going, right? He got word that Lazarus, your friend, is sick. He didn't go. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes I was not there that you may believe. What was he doing? Why? Do you think he waited for the greatest risk? So he goes up and he's dead. He's been dead for days. Good and dead, I guess you could call it. He was good and dead. If he had come that day or something, they would have accused him of some kind of shenanigans of just, they just wrapped him up, put him in there, and his friend Jesus showed up and he walked out of the grave. There was nothing to this. Remember what they said when they buried Jesus, you know, place guards there because these people, they're up to all kinds of tricks, right? But he got there four days later and said, he said, roll away the stone. Mary said, no, 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 Lord, it's been four days as a stench. He was dead. Jesus waited for the greatest moment of risk. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. He set himself up for great risk and raised him from the dead. You know the curse of the toad? The uh, centipede's dilemma? where we think about it too much. The kingdom of heaven does not come by observation, but we're going to get it here by observation. We're going to think about it and figure it out. So we minimize risk in this when I go pray for that person or when I speak this or when I stand up in a meeting. I want to minimize risk. 
footnote says there's a solution to this, to the curse of the toad. It says it's salvator ambulando. <laughs> it's a Latin phrase which means salvator, it is solved by ambulando, by walking. Just getting up and walking. That's what the centipede had to do. He's in a ball in the ditch. He's thinking about what am I going to do? Salvatore Ambulando, get up and walk. Go ahead, do it. Don't think about tying your shoe. Just tie it and it's going to go. That's what it takes. And that's a risk. Don't consult with flesh and blood. Just do it. And it better be the Lord too. But your, your, your disciples prayed for him and he was not healed. Be prepared for that too. How about when Jesus walked on the water? Lord, tell me to come to you. Come. He starts walking on the water. He's walking on the water. And what does it say he did? He regarded the wind and the waves. <laughs> and what happened? He sank. <laughs> right? Oh, you have little faith. He started thinking about it. He's in that other ditch of watching out for himself. How about this? I'm, almost, I'm done here. When he ascended on high, Ephesians 4 and 8, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What did we say was our captivity? It was the fear of death. It said he led that captive. He took the fear of death captive for us, is what he did. And he gave, and the next, and he gave gifts to men. Isn't that incredible? You want the gifts? Then let him take captivity captive. Let him take the fear of death captive in our lives. Let's find the way to eternal life. He took it captive, the thing which captivated held us in bondage to the fear of death. See, those gifts can't be manifested without risk. When you eliminate risk, you eliminate faith, I think. Because faith is the certainty of things not yet seen, so there's a risk in there. This is my last scripture, and I'm done. Here goes. Hebrews 11, faith. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, also of David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped from the edge of the sword out of weakness. Not out of comfort and strength, out of weakness, out of suffering, were made strong became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead back to life. Others were tortured, suffering, not accepting deliverance. And it goes down. They were stoned. They wandered about in sheepskins, of whom the world was not worthy. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That their testimony is not perfect apart from us entering into it. Remember, his strength is made perfect 
not in our strength, but in our weakness. I just think that's what it's going to take. It's going to take us willing to enter into that suffering, whatever it may be. We want the gifts. We want God to move through us wherever we're going. It's going to take getting up and walking and doing it. And we do. We see with 2020 vision the other ditch, and I know it. I've been in the other ditch enough to know. But we've got to stand up and not, not consult with flesh and blood, but put one foot in front of the other and do it. Whatever suffering it may bring, because it's only in weakness, is their sacrifice going to be made perfect in us. Amen. I didn't know what Brother Kevin was going to speak, but I want to share just a couple things with you. I read this scripture this morning, not knowing what he was going to minister. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When he began to speak to us about different approaches to immortality, that scripture became more relevant to me. If we want to find true immortality in Christ, then we must fix our eyes on invisible things. I know it's a paradox, but it's one the Bible gives us. It says, and I read this morning in Hebrews eleven twelve, that Moses endured because he saw him who was invisible. And I don't think by either of these passages that Paul or the writer of Hebrews is indicating that they actually were able to see with their natural eyes. But they're saying that if you're going to build your immortality project out of visible, visceral, tangible, natural things, it's not going to work. True immortality is going to come when you live by the invisible, that which is more real, more enduring than the visible. I was talking, and I want to be considerate, but I was talking with a couple people this week, my mom, about some tragedies that I'm aware of. My dad came to God at a time, early 70s, when a lot was happening in the world, and in Pentecost in particular. There was a sense of revival burgeoning forth at that time. People were coming to God at a remarkable pace. Sister Bonnie, how many were baptized in the Pacific Ocean when you were 
baptized that time? Sister Bonnie was baptized in the Pacific Ocean on a day when hundreds, many hundreds of youth swarmed down into the sea under the preaching of a man. I believe that individual claimed to have baptized over 8,000, not on that particular day, but in general in the Pacific Ocean. It's like something out of the pages of the Bible. All Judea was going down to John the Baptist because he was baptizing in the Jordan. Well, they're in the Pacific Ocean. And she was baptized at the same time with hundreds of people. There was a move of God. They call it the 70s revival. How many of us meet somebody in their middle ages and, and you talk to them a little bit and they, you say something about the 70s and you find out they came to God during that move? How many, your parents or someone you know came to God in the 70s? Your parents even, raise your hand, or yourself came to God in the 70s. There was a move of God. And yet now we live in the 2020s. And we look back at some of the brightest shining stars of that revival. Got to spend time with one in the last couple months. And it is appalling. Men who were the movers and shakers, who led congregations numbering in the thousands, who were the sought-after speakers and influencers across the world. If there was a revival taking place or a conference being held, these men were the men you wanted to speak. And yet, now these same men stand in the shambles of a totally dilapidated life and ministry. It makes you want to weep. You know how David wrote his lament for Saul. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. They have no congregation. They have no spiritual or natural offspring carrying on their ministry. They have a legacy of bringing people in whom they could not sustain in the kingdom and who fell away or else found other ministries that would sustain them. And I don't know exactly the reasons, but what I do know is that two of these men in particular who we have come into contact with, increased contact recently, who have nothing, nothing, nothing but memories, nothing but Gehazi recollections of a time when. Two of these individuals came into contact with the founder of this church when he was starting on a different path. And at the time, their path looked abundant. It looked exhilarating, attended by applause and much glory and fanfare, excitement. They were reaching the masses. Wasn't that a term? They were preaching all over multiple continents. They were starting works every time you turned your head. And here comes this man 
who wasn't raised in the church like they were, but who they brought to God in part. And he says, God is calling the church in a different direction. And we got to make some pivots here. We got to pay attention to family life and the order between parents and children. We got to pay attention to church order and how the Lord would compose the gifts and cause them to relate one to another. We got to make it real in our domestic daily existence. And at the time, that vision looked like a risk not worth taking. That vision looked like a wind down, a slow, tedious path to nowhere. While we've got this runway of promise that we can barely have time to stop and talk to you because we're so busy with the purpose of God. Some of you know you can't even have a meaningful conversation with some of these people because they're moving so fast. It's like, God bless you, God bless you. Oh, good to see you. Praise the Lord, brother. It's, I know the Lord's doing a great work in Waco. Tell me about it. Mm, that's great. And they're, past, they're, they're moving on. And, 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 and the paradox is that the path that they mocked, a path that took them into the farm, taught them how to milk cows and dig deep beds, Look at where one path led and look at where the other led. And now they write and send messages as they did this week saying things to one another as we heard this week. If Blair had remained with us, he would have never been able to do what he did. And they come and stand in, these, in this hall and marvel at what God has done. And sit in the cafe and plead with Brother Howard, tell me, what are you doing with your young people? We've never seen anything like this. But the tragedy is it's too late. It's not too late for them to grieve. They're doing that. It's not too late for them to say, oh, I remember. They're recollecting plenty. But it's too late for them to be a part of what they could have been a part of. In short, God sent them an answer that would have made their gift and their efforts durable. But they didn't recognize it as that. They saw it as a threat to their higher aspirations, their faster-moving promises. Do you follow with me? And this is life. Whether for your ministry or for your children... You are making decisions that you have no proof for. And those decisions that set the course of your life, they will reveal your claim to faith. When we make decisions that we have no proof to back up, we reveal our deepest faith. And when that revelation comes, it may be 50 years down the road, it will be too late to undo those decisions and have a try over. We will be left with 
a reality that either proves we acted on the impulse of the one we trust, whether self or God. But it will be too late to undo it. In short, our works will be burned with fire. Though we ourselves might be saved through the mourning of the bad choices we made, our works will be burned with fire. Some of you parents, you need to listen. You're only going to get to raise that child one time. And you're going to hear the word of God that supersedes your own instincts and emotions. And you're going to do God's will because you believe in his promise and the power of his word that upholds all things, including your feeble efforts. Or you're going to say, well, that's how they think and that's what he thinks, but I know best. And you're going to do it your way. And when you get to the end of your way, it will be too late to do it over again. And then you're going to condemn yourself. Nobody's going to condemn you. They're just going to feel bad for you and try to encourage you. But you're going to condemn yourself. Number one reason why people fail out of this course that we're all on is because of their children. Because they stubbornly refuse to pay the price to get serious about the little things. They refuse to take the risk of trusting God even when it entails disobeying the flesh. And they get to the place where the chickens come home to roost and they realize they blew it, they failed, and then they feel condemned. Nobody has to condemn them. They feel condemned. And that's the kind of risk that Brother Kevin is speaking about. You're going to make decisions that reveal your deepest faith. And when those decisions are proven as right or wrong, it'll be too late. God won't force you. God won't make you. My dad used to tell a story about a, it's a parable about a man who lived in London in an ordinary apartment on an ordinary street carrying on a pretty ordinary life. And he didn't know it, but for some reason, he gained the attention of some group of great notoriety and purpose and import. I might conflate this. I don't care if I do. The parable stands. And these people conspired to test this man and to discover whether he was of the caliber they anticipated, they believed he might be. He doesn't know he's being tested. He's picked up in a car, and a job interview ensues. But he doesn't know that behind the job interview, an important individual, maybe a politician, might have been someone who was looking for a specific place to fill a role in a, in, a, in a political setting, if I remember correctly. He's part of the job interview, but the man, the Londonite, doesn't know. They take him to, they take him out to eat, and they look at his table manners, and they, they take him out to some event, and they watch his interactions, and all the while, he is assuming 
that he is being interviewed for something very ordinary and average and he wants to get it but no big deal. And he doesn't know that behind the scenes a greater interview is taking place. And in the end, he's dropped back off after this strange saga that he can't really explain, this, this trip to strange places, meeting strange people and encounters that he'd never quite understood. All of a sudden, the car pulls up and he's dropped back off right where he was picked up. And he never knows that he failed the test. And he didn't measure up. My dad used to tell us that story, and I, I might have conflated it. Mom, you can correct me if you want. Hmm? Can I yeah. One key was he always chose for himself. But one of the big problems was in every circumstance that he was in. Thank you. Yeah. He ended up choosing for himself. And that was kind of their intent, to put circumstances before him to see whether he would, he would take the impulse to choose for himself or whether he would put others first. Amen. And in every instance, he chose for himself. And he never knew that he even had the opportunity. That's a scary thought. And I think it rings so true because somehow from the pages of the Bible and from our own walk with God, we know that's how the Lord does things. Do you think, do you think that if Rebecca at the well if she had smart-mouthed to Eliezer, get a drink yourself, buddy. My mom has got a bad attitude today, and i got to get home. I mean, that's what he would have found in America. Do you think she would have gone home and ever had a clue that the destiny of the ages was contained in a simple question for an act of kindness from a stranger. No, and I think she would have been a complainer. I dare say, in a few years' time, she would have been complaining about not being married. <laughs> or if she was married, she would have been complaining about this deadbeat who never does anything. Meanwhile, the promise of God came for a visit and didn't find her. See, we want God to put everything out and for us to evaluate. We want him to put everything out there and tell us, if you take this path, it's going to have this guaranteed result. And if you take that path, it's going to have this guaranteed result. Oh, okay, well, I'll take this path. But you're right, that's not faith. That's fixing your eyes on what is visible and therefore is a lie. It's not durable. But God will visit you. And if you have a heart to hear his voice, you will have this impulse to follow. And if you don't, he'll pass you by. When Elijah put his cloak over Elisha, Elijah's just come out of the cave. He'd just been in a slump of despondency himself. And the Lord told him, listen, get out of your dumb cave. I've got 7,000 people 
who will make a mockery out of your self-pity. My paraphrase. And I don't know if Elijah doubted it. I don't know if, I don't know why. I don't, I don't understand the gesture. Walk by someone and throw your sweater on them. It's like, I don't know why. I don't know if it was like, I don't know if he was testing the Lord. I don't believe this. This is the guy, Lord? This, this bozo tilling in the field? I waved at him. He didn't even pay attention. Okay, well, let's try this. I don't know. I don't know if he was full of faith and thought, you know, let me just show this to him. or I don't, I don't know. But I, if he's a little bit like me, maybe he was saying, really? Really? This guy? So he put his sweater on him. And Elisha says to him, let me kiss my parents goodbye and I will follow you. Instantaneously. He recognizes the call of the eternal and he takes the risk. And Elijah says, did I do something? Did I make you an offer? He's not, he's not trying to pull him. He's not trying to coerce him into his place. There's a saying, you can drag a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, God doesn't even drag you to water. He just says, there's hope for a tree if it be cut down. That at the scent of water, it will sprout to life again. And if there's something in you that smells water, you better follow that. When Brother Kevin read that ad from Shackleton, something thumped in the heart of every Christian in this room. And it's not because there was some transcendent purpose in, in, in exploring Antarctica. It's because there's a longing inside of you to answer challenges that reveal yourself. What does he say about faith? What, what does he say about what suffering does to faith? How does it? Faith that is tried in the fire is tested. Your faith has been proven as more precious than gold that is tried in the fire. Trials, trials reveal whether you live by fool's gold or true faith. Trials show you what you're made of. It's why a woman anticipates the birth of her child, though she fears it at the same time. It's not just that she wants to hold that baby. It's not just that she wants to be a mommy. That's the most of it. That's the biggest part of it. But it's also she wants to discover who she is. She wants to know, is my love strong enough? Is my faith strong enough? Can I do this? It's a, it's a quest for self-discovery. My dad used to tell us that a man yearns a challenge. And he said sometimes this challenge is realized when a man clears a plot of land and builds the first house. Or sometimes it's, it's answered when he starts a business and builds it up from the ground. But there's something inside of a man. There's something inside of us. We want that challenge. And it's not just to be a show-off. There's that too. But that's not what I'm focusing on. That's not what throbbed in your heart when you heard that ad. Because what that ad said without saying it is, come learn what you're made of. Come discover who you are. 
come except a crisis, a challenge to be different. Come, get heated up in the forge of transformation and see what God can make of you. And I promise you before God, that's the same promise that the disciples heard when a sandaled Galilean passed by on the shore and said, follow me. Something leapt in their hearts. Come on, guys, let's do this. And their faith was tested by the trials this man endured. And before his final trial, he complimented them. Just before the Last Supper, he said to them, you are those who have stood with me in all my trials. Of course, it got so bad that they started jumping ship because he was going to a place where they needed more. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit to stand with him in all his trials. One of his trials was when everybody left. 25,000 got up and walked out of the meeting. And he turned to Peter. And Peter showed him, I'm here because I am looking at what is invisible. I'm here because I know the voice of God and I have faith in the voice of God even though you are dashing my expectations and shattering all my dreams, even though every opportunity you seem to slam like a door, there is something that is tugging at my heart. I know this is the will of God, and I'm willing to go all in. I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to be numbered with the transgressor. Amen. The one who they say has a demon and is a servant of Beelzebub. Because my deepest faith is being revealed when I make a choice that I have no proof for. And I just feel the Lord inviting us to make choices for the right reasons. And to see through the instincts of self the instincts of immortality projects that would pull us toward building our own kingdoms because the tragedy is God will let us build them. But when they are built and when they fall and when we stand in the ashes of our own vainglory, it will be too late to trace our steps and start again. Some things only are revealed with much time. I, I, I wish you could have heard. There are men in this room who heard these great leaders, these gifted luminaries who heard them sit around and mock. <laughs> now they're growing wheat for the tribulation. <laughs> now they're planting deep beds. <laughs> I heard Blair got a cow. I wonder how the gospel comes out of a milk pail. And those men are saying, you didn't lose your church during COVID? We went down to 10 people. I'm quoting them. Tell me, what did you do? 
What, what went different? Well, when, when the cymbals and the trumpets and the fanfare and the glory called us one way, and the still, small voice of God tugged a different way, we made a turn. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we want to hear your voice, and we believe we hear it today. We have followed you, God. Hallelujah. Help us to follow you all the way. Thank you, Jesus. Abraham came out with Lot and all of his flocks and children. Then the place where they were in became too tight. And Abraham's servants began to bicker with Lot's servants. They didn't see themselves as one. And so Abraham says in Genesis 13, he tells Lot, he says, I want you to make a choice. Go this way or go that way. My dad talks about sitting down with one of these leaders that I'm referencing and giving him the, the, the revelation of the fivefold ministry with much patience and prayer and fasting before he had the meeting. And he says he remembers looking in the, in the man's eyes, my dad says, and he saw a tear course down his cheek. And the man said, Blair, I perceive we have come to the parting of the ways. Because his ambitions and his vision for what he was seemed lost down this narrow path that was just too domestic and too ordinary and too slow. If God had called my dad to do some crusade where hundreds of thousands were swarming through the gates, these men would have been on his coattails. But because it was get your families in order, develop a real prayer life, walk in humility, because that was the call, they couldn't do it. Well, Abraham came to a parting of the ways like this with Lot, and he said, go to the right, go to the left. Wherever you go, I will go elsewhere. And it says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of Sodom. And he said that to view, the Bible tells us that to view to his eyes, it was as fruitful and plentiful and well watered as the garden of God itself, as the garden of Eden itself. This is a man who goes by what his eyes can see. This is a man who has lost the inner compass that tunes his heart to the still small voice. Lot surveyed Sodom before the judgment and the sulfur and the smoke that would later rise from it. And so he went down to Sodom and Abraham went up to the mountains. Amen. It's drier, less grass, less water. But he was going to know the Lord's voice up that way. How many times I, I remember somebody who almost became part of us, who sat in these meetings less than a year ago. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, both they and their wife. I really love these folks and I still pray for them. 
But they told me in my living room, they told me about this man in Africa who had done a great work and who had just brought in tons of orphans and made a home for the homeless. And, and they were worried that, that we thought we were too exclusive and exclusionary. I was like, no, no, we, we praise God for people like that. But that, that was their aspiration. We want, to, we want to be sent to India. We want to be doing a work in Africa like this gentleman that they named specifically. And they left and went their way. And they haven't heard much of them since then. Meanwhile, Brother Cash and Brother Randy are in Africa. And they come back and Randy starts telling me about this guy. And he says, yeah, we, we made this connection. Cash reached out to him and we went to this place and, and they start telling me about this guy. And I'm like, that name rings a bell. Where have I heard that? Where have I heard? Well, anyway, this guy has no children to take over and he has no Nobody that he can pass his ministry off to. And he was confiding in them that he's made mistakes and promising that he wants to come to this community. This man who's been widely publicized around the world. and Documentaries done about him and PBS and so on and so forth. And I'm like, where have I heard? Oh, I remember the guy who left us because he wanted to do something like this man. He told me about this guy. And now without even trying... This man is turning to us, and we've made this connection with this man. You see, I couldn't have made that promise. I couldn't sit there on the couch and say, well, if you'll stick with us, we're going to go meet this man, and we're going to be working together someday. I didn't know that. But God knew that. And he would have fulfilled that man's dreams if that man would have let go of his dreams and trusted the voice of God more than his dreams. How many of you have heard backsliders come to the church and say, wow, y'all are so different. Well, did you expect us to stay the same? We've been up on the mountain with the Lord, and he's been teaching us a lot of painful lessons. I'm just sorry that you're so the same. We're moving with God, brothers and sisters, if we're following his voice and not our own ambitions. The tragedy is he's so gentle. He'll let us go to Sodom if that's our choice. He'll let us pick our own poison. That's what he did to Solomon. When Solomon became king, he went up and made a sacrifice to the Lord. And that night he had a dream. And in the dream, the Lord came and said, Solomon, what do you want? Because ultimately that's what you're going to get. said, well, I feel completely powerless. I'm a child who still needs to be led by the hand. This is what Solomon said to the Lord. How can I lead this great people of yours except if you give me wisdom? Would you please give me your perspective, God? That's what wisdom is. And the Lord said, because you did not ask for wealth and you did not ask for your enemies' heads, because you did not ask for power, but you asked for wisdom. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for also. I just I want to just put an exclamation mark on what God is speaking to us today. Let's make the risk. Let's take the risk to trust the voice of God. And let's check our spirits lest we start to tell the Lord what we want and lest he give us what we want. Brother Dan spoke so profoundly to us in San Antonio. 
He said, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. And he was saying to us, that doesn't mean the Lord's going to give you what your carnal nature demands. That means you got the wrong desires. But if you'll trust him, he'll plant the new ones in you. God, would you give us the desire of your heart for this year, for my family, for the kingdom that you're building? Would you let me make choices that today that my children will speak about in 50 years to come and say, thank God my father went to the mountain when his partners went to the valley. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. There is a way that leads to life and the few that find it never die past mountain peaks laced white with snow the way grows brighter as we go and there is a road prepared for you the destination sure and true. And from pilgrimage, do not depart. Run after God with all your heart. Run after God with all your heart. And sometimes the shadow Sometimes it's good to look back.